This is Max Q, the podcast by Peabody's Launchpad office dedicated to demystifying what life is like after graduation. Every episode, we sit down with a recent Peabody alum to get their take on what life is like for working artists in today's world. Multifaceted careers, time management, finances, finding balance between your life and your work. We explore that and more on the Max Q Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Christina Mansior. Today's interview is with saxophonist Kyle Jones, who graduated from Peabody in 2017 and is currently pursuing a DMA in saxophone performance at the University of Missouri Kansas City Conservatory. In addition to his active freelance performance career, Kyle is adjunct faculty at Mid-America Nazarene University, teaches private lessons, and works in an arts administration role for the nonprofit Fast Forward Austin. Hi, Kyle. Thank you so much for joining us on the MaxQ podcast. I'm really excited to have a conversation with you today. Hi, Christina. I really appreciate you reaching out and setting up this opportunity. Um, I'm really excited to talk and share whatever insight uh, that I may have from my time as a student at Peabody and also graduating and uh, embarking on this career that I have uh, at least begun to craft for myself. Goodness knows I'm not anywhere near a completed (laughs) goal, uh, but it's nice to see how it's progressed and uh, hopefully I can share something useful. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, to get started, I'd love to hear what your life looks like right now. Absolutely. Right now, I am currently in the second of a third year of a doctoral program at the University of Missouri-Kansas City Conservatory, where I'm pursuing a doctorate in saxophone performance. Um, In addition to that, I am also working an arts administration position. I'm a co-director of a nonprofit based in Austin, Texas, called Fast Forward Austin. Uh, that position I started in February of 2020, and we put on one large scale concert uh, event a, a year. Um, I share that position with three other people. We're all co directors. Uh, in addition to that, I'm also a mentor, a graduate mentor. Uh, through the uh, UMKC LGBTQIA plus mentorship program um, and that uh, offshoot of uh, student services here at UMKC. I'm paired with an undergraduate mentee. Uh, we, we meet with them about twice a month and we just offer any advice that we can, things such as the coming out process, navigating the professional sphere as an outwardly queer individual, um, financial literacy, just anything that has uh, come up in our own uh, professional trajectory that we can aid them in. That's awesome. Yeah, so I'm really interested in, especially as you're, as you're a current student and a active performing musician and an administrator and very active in your community, how do you kind of conceive of balancing all of these different things in your life? Like, are there things that you consider higher priorities, things that you consider taking up the more or less of your time? And how do you make those choices for yourself? That's a really good question. And I think the question of balance has been something that has been slowly evolving during my entire trajectory in academia. And so I think that when I was a student at Peabody, I was there from 2016 to 2018, where I did a master's in saxophone performance. 
I was pretty obsessive. I was all in. Uh, it was a huge transition for me. If my accent doesn't betray it, I'm from rural Appalachia. I went to a uh, relatively small uh, university, East Tennessee State University, and then took two years off and was an assistant middle school director. And then I went to Peabody. And so once I was in that place of, you know, just a really high performing culture that had a long and storied history of producing great artists um, with wonderful uh, teaching faculty. I sort of threw everything into that and I didn't really think about the balance of who I was personally outside of what I was pursuing professionally. Um, I cannot recommend that. Um, <laughs> I, I think that maybe in short bursts, it's fine and it's manageable. Um, but what I found uh, was that after that two-year period of really concentrated, hyper-focused study, um, I was a little disenfranchised. And so afterwards, when I moved to Austin and did an artist diploma at UT Austin, I became a lot more concerned about um, taking care of the side of myself that was not engaged with the craft. Uh, I found that even though I was still really hungry for art uh, and, and my pursuits and developing my craft, um, I was feeling a little, for lack of a better word, malnourished personally. Uh, because there were all of these different facets of myself that I was not paying attention to um, specifically. And I, of course, I hinted at this with my role as a mentor through UMKC, queer, uh, the Queer Graduate Mentorship. But I uh, am a queer person and I felt like I was not finding a community of people who specifically fed uh, that need for community. And so I joined actually the Austin Front Runners, uh, which was a LGBTQ running club in Austin. And through that, I found that my personal needs were met a little bit better. You know, I was finding social interactions outside of school with people who had different interests. A lot of times those interests were intersectional, um, but I wasn't just identifying and putting all of my value on what I was doing in school every single day or in the practice room every day. Um, I think my role as an administrator grew out of an interest in just collaborating with other artists. It was just a natural offshoot of that. Um, I obviously had gigged and enjoyed gigging, uh, but I was curious about the other side of that and how my interest in like curatorial practices um, could uh, could be manifested. And actually, they approached me. Um, it was really funny. I remember that conversation. Uh, David uh, Carlton Adams, who's actually at Peabody now um, and is a teaching assistant, he sat down with me and he said, would you be interested in this position? Uh, and I said, well, David, you know, I have no experience uh, with the nonprofit sector. I really don't have any arts administration experience personally. And he said, well, Kyle, you managed to get things done with absolutely zero budget. And that's what we're <laughs> looking for. And that's I an said, important well, skill. <laughs> and I said, well, if, if that is the criteria, I do feel like I have that skill set. And so... <laughs> I will I will hop on and offer any advice um, uh, that I possibly can for <laughs> for that for that role. Um, and so, luckily, as far as time commitment is concerned, that position 
goes through a period of being a lot right before we have, I would say the two months or three months leading up to when we have our annual concert. And then there's a relatively quiet period. That's certainly not the case with all nonprofits, um, but with the size and the scope of what we do in Austin, uh, it allows me to still maintain being a student uh, and then also having that position. Uh, sometimes it overlaps with the crunch period of the semester, and then there's a little bit of a period where I feel stretched. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it's temporary, it sounds it like. Is, it is very temporary, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. You bring up so many interesting points. And one thing that really struck me is when when I asked, what does your life look like right now? I really appreciate that you brought up not just career things, but also personal things and community things. And I think that's so apropos because sometimes I think we do put so much of our artistic identity on what we're doing as a performer, what we're doing that we're getting paid for, what we're doing as a teacher, whatever our focus might be, or a composer or a recording arts engineer. I mean, all these things that we do as a in our work as artists and then kind of like push to the side, at least I did this as well, the kind of personal things that make us humans. <laughs> and I think it's so important that, and I really appreciate that you brought that up because I think that um, having that as your goal, it just really shows like the way you're speaking about it shows that you're thinking about yourself as a whole person. I think that's really, that's what really struck me the most. Um, Yeah. Well, I guess I'd love to dig into kind of the nitty gritty of that because I know that when you're a student and when, when you're a student, whether you're current student or graduating, becoming a working artist, there's a lot of time requirements on all the things that we are asked to do, whether it's our schoolwork, whether it's the gigs we're taking, whether it's the administrative work that you were just talking about, So how do you like logistically manage your time in order to carve out that space for yourself as well as carve out space for the artistic things that you find most important? Well, part of it, if we're just going to talk about a really nuts and bolts, like very salt of the earth approach is that I have a giant dry erase board on my wall and um, I have it, I have like a to-do list, um, Things are organized based on what activity they are. I mean, I have, you know, who needs to be emailed, um, what needs to be done for like academic coursework, what needs to be done for the nonprofit. Uh, The other thing that I think has become really important has been a mindset shift about what constitutes productivity. Um, Because I used to associate productivity with the craft solely with engaging with the instrument. And I think what's really helped me is designating time for certain activities. And unfortunately, this is the activity that I think has become like the bane of of modern existence, um, emails. But nothing happens if you don't send and receive emails. (laughs) I I mean, there's I, I... I can't really emphasize this enough, um, especially if you're if you're a younger artist and you don't have management. Absolutely nothing happens if you don't make it happen. And really, a lot of times that's an email. Um, I think that it used to be a thing that I would 
regret. And, you know, emails were uh, these things that occasionally came up where I would get like a promotion or an ad or like, oh, maybe I'd be more concerned about checking my email when I had applied for a competition or a scholarship or graduate school. And now, I mean, I wake up and I'm checking my email every day and I have time set aside in the morning specifically for that. And maybe mm-hmm. that seems like the most basic, banal thing to say. Um, but I can't tell you how many opportunities that I have had that have simply been from sending a blind email. Um, I talked to so many students and there's this perceived barrier between themselves and established career professionals in the field. And well, we can't email them. We don't want to bother them. Well, in my experience... The worst that they can say is no. They certainly cannot slap you too. And <laughs> I, I just, I, again, yeah. maybe I'm rambling a little bit here, but I think that the most important thing is setting aside time to send emails. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if not, I mean, nothing's going to happen. At least nothing is going to happen um, outside of what would happen in your day-to-day goings-on that's facilitated by the school. You yeah. know, as far as like ensemble performances working with a collaborative pianist, solo, whatever that may be. Um, If you're looking for opportunities that happen outside of school or you're about to graduate and you're looking for what the next step is, if you don't set aside that time to to not only research opportunities that could be happening, but then also send emails and get some sort of dialogue started, um, things really grind to a halt. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like, I mean, you're talking about emails as a vehicle, but it sounds like you're also talking about proactivity in terms of searching for and finding things that you might want to go after. Yeah. And it's, it's really funny. I mean, I I know this is certainly not the best example, but I'll just, I'll give it because it's uh, funny and it happened recently. I had a friend um, and as saxophonist, we have so few opportunities to perform with orchestra um, and sometimes they're coveted. Sometimes they're not. I mean, when you think about it, a lot of our repertoire, we're, you know, playing for a movement or, you know, a few lines or something. I mean, it's, it's really not as glamorous, perhaps, for us as it is for other instruments. Uh, but example, a friend um, posted that they were playing uh, with, they were going to sub with an orchestra that's in the general vicinity. And so I immediately looked up what their concert season was. I see in May that they're doing Romeo and Juliet Suite Number no. 2, large tenor saxophone part. I emailed them my CV, a rep list, and told them that um, I would be happy to send representative recordings. And I got an email saying that they would put me on their sub list within two days. That's awesome. Yeah. And that may amount to absolutely nothing. Um, but I did a similar thing this summer. I sent 10 orchestras that a CV, um, a rep list of, of orchestral rep that I had studied or performed um, and told them that I would be able to send representative recordings if needed. I got six responses. Now, I'm not saying that I got six performance opportunities, but I got six responses saying, we're going to forward this along to the artistic director, the conductor, or thank you so much. No need to send recordings. We'll go ahead and put you on our sub list for future engagements. And so I think, again, you you know, it's going to feel like there's a lot of activity. Uh, It's going to feel like a lot of stop and start, or it's going to feel like sending a lot out and maybe not getting a lot back. But um, 
I guess to not rely heavily on an uh, overly tired analogy, I mean, it is sort of like putting money in the bank because you never know when, you know, on the next concert season, they're going to need someone and you were the loudest person. You know, mm-hmm. you were the most recent person to reach out, and that yeah. means that you're going to be the first person to get called. Yeah. Well, and if you don't reach out, then how can they call you if they don't know that you're there? Yeah, exactly. So, so you if if you want a chance of being that person to play saxophone on that next Romeo and Juliet performance, <laughs> then right, you got to be present in in the minds of the people who are doing the hiring. And I think that's yeah. it. Sounds like that's what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there, there's just such this barrier at times where we feel like we are being burdensome or we are mm-hmm. um, being annoying to people when we send these correspondences out. And I think a lot of times we would be surprised that we're actually making it easier for them to do their job because mm-hmm. they are no longer having to go out and and search for people or go through perhaps an outdated um, sub list. People have moved on or they're yeah. not interested any longer. That's such a um, good point. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think, I think so. And especially like, I mean, I, I'm sure there are annoying ways to go about it, but I think if you are approaching it in a mature and classy way, you're probably fine. As long as yeah. you're not sending an email daily, you're probably good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, there's certainly a, a barrier there or there's certainly <laughs> a, a threshold that you do not want to cross as far as like being, quote, the squeaky will. Um, <laughs> as long as you're following, you know, accepted standard um, protocol with a you know professional correspondence, I think you're probably going to be okay. Yeah. If I could succinctly sum up the past five minutes of me going on about sublists and emails, I think it would all be wrapped up in do not wait for permission. Mm-hmm. No one's gonna. No one is gonna give you permission. No one's gonna anoint you and say, "Congratulations! Like you can now." be considered for these opportunities. Congratulations. You're now an artist. Now you can have a career. Um, Mm. I I think that because of the degree process, we we think about it that way. We think there's these, um, these milestones we're going to reach. And it's like, ah, now I'm an artist. Mm -hmm. And that just never really happens. Like, I think you're an artist when you wake up and decide you want to be an artist and you start engaging with art and you're making art. And if you're already doing those activities, congratulations, you're an artist. And no Mm -hmm. one needs to tell you that to validate that belief that you already hold for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so when do you see the arts career, quote unquote, starting? I think that it starts as early as you are capable of engaging with it um, in a productive way, I guess. I think that certainly early on in your career, you're going to rely more heavily on the advice and the mentorship of a teacher um, to tell you what opportunity, you know, what repertoire you need to study and what skills you need to continue refining and 
perhaps what opportunities you should seek out. But I think that as soon as you are making decisions for yourself, um, as far as, you know, what you're interested in pursuing, I think, gosh, I don't know. It's so personal. Yeah. Um, I, I was talking to an undergrad here and, uh, he was a, I guess at the time, yeah, he was a sophomore. He was a rising, he was a sophomore at the time, rising junior. And he said, oh, I want to, I'm thinking about playing a re, sort of a fun recital of, of wider fare over the summer. And I said, oh, that's great. How much are you going to charge? And he said, oh, I could, I could never charge. I, I'm not, I'm not going to charge for, for tickets. And I said, well, why wouldn't you charge for tickets? And he said, well, because I'm a student still, you know, I'm an undergrad, I'm a sophomore. And I said, well, yeah, but you're going to be a junior. And I said, have you worked on the music? I mean, is it studied at a high level? Have you spent time on it? Well, yeah, of course. Okay. And you're pursuing this degree to hopefully find gainful employment in the field of the arts, correct? Oh, yeah, of course, of course. So when can you start charging for your performances? And he didn't know. Mm -hmm. And he asked me. And I said, well, I don't have that answer for you. You know, mm -hmm. I can tell you that I started, I don't know, gosh, after I graduated undergrad. Because mm -hmm. I thought, well, I've got this degree. And I have other friends in other fields who are making money after they have a bachelor. So <laughs> why am I not able to make money? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I, 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 I think it's really personal. And I think it's whatever you feel comfortable with. But I would say that. When asking yourself what you feel comfortable with, it's probably earlier than what you think. Well, yeah. And also, does does career a career-related pursuit have to mean that you're making money on it? Sure. Yeah. That, and like, I think that, just as yeah. another, as another, even another way to look at it, you know, it's, it's, I think that like, even if, even if this person didn't charge tickets for that concert, I think it could be argued that that's still an effort towards a performing career in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And in no way do I want to continue to tether, uh, you know, meaning to and value to, you know, capitalist pursuits. Like I'm not mm -hmm. saying that the of only thing not. that's yeah. valuable, yeah, the only thing that's valuable um, is things that you can monetize. And that's certainly not what I mean. No, I no, think, I don't think so. Yeah. I think, um, I think that that being said, because so many things in our society are driven by that, and that's just the nature of the society that we live in, I think the more that we can do um, to find value in what we do, and mm -hmm. I, I think that we at times have to teach or remind people about the value of what we do. Yeah, definitely. I, I, think, I think that sometimes, even though it is still valuable and we're still putting on an artistic performance we're putting our out into the world i think that um there are times where the community that we perhaps are presenting the art in is used to not attaching value and because we assign value so much in, in contemporary society with a f um a fiscal mm -hmm. like a, a price tag basically being yeah. attached to it i think that as we do that perhaps we help teach the community, whatever community you're in, 
the value of it. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess that leads me to another question, which is, of course, we do have to make ends meet financially because we live in the world and we need money to pay rent and buy food and do all the other things that we do in life. So how do you, um, how has your perspective on the financial side of the arts evolved over time? And like, how do you see like different streams of income providing support? Yeah, absolutely. And so I still private teach. I also have an adjunct position um, at Mid-American Nazarene in Olathe, Kansas, which is about 20 minute drive. I teach two uh, non-major students there. Um, I actually make more uh, from my private lessons teaching than I do adjunct as an adjunct faculty member. Uh, maybe that will shock some people. Maybe it will shock no one. Um, but uh, I will say that it's just kind of cobbling together a few different things. Um, right now, it's mostly private teaching. And then the financial aid that I have, um, that I'm lucky to have through my academic institution. And so the combination of those two things um, is able to provide me with everything that I need. And then in the summer, I typically um, take on a couple of teaching appointments. I do some masterclass teaching um, and some band camps, um, which... <laughs> A lot of people really don't like them. I really love a good band camp. I taught I band know camp. It, it was fun. <laughs> yeah, I love a good band camp. Yeah. I don't know. People are so people get a little bit snooty with band, but I love a good band camp. Um, and I've I've had the privilege of working with some real, some really great programs who have just a really great culture mm -hmm. about them. Uh, and I think that that makes all the difference. Yeah. But yeah, I it's definitely a lot. Um, it's definitely a lot of just piecing together a few different revenue streams. And mm -hmm. I think that teaching will always be a part of it. Um, I don't see teaching just as a means to the end uh, to pay the bills. I mean, I love teaching. Um, and sometimes you have to work a little harder and, and sometimes um, it's a lot easier. It just depends on the area that you're in. And if you can get affiliated perhaps with like a, an academy um, where you become a teaching artist on their roster, um, I think that helps, yeah. um, but then also being an independent contractor can help as well. That way you don't have any overhead with people trying to tell you, you know, this is the maximum amount you can charge. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have to have this many lessons a term. Um, you know, I, th I think what fits best for you um, is something that you have to figure out when you start engaging with that. If that's something that you, you know, are interested in as a revenue stream, mm -hmm. um, I think we... There used to be this sort of play-teach dichotomy that, you know, there's people who play for a living and then there's people who teach for a living. And I think that pretty much anyone now would tell you that you're going to be doing both, some some combination of both. I can't tell you what the ratio of both will look like, um, but I imagine that you'll be doing both of those things probably for the full duration of your career. What do you feel like helped you best prepare for that kind of multi-revenue stream approach that you're taking? Whether it was something in school or things you did outside of school or, I, I don't know, what, what helped you kind of feel the most kind of ready for that? Well, I was really privileged in my undergrad that I had a professor that really understood that there were a lot of subjects that were not going to be covered by just the core curriculum by the nature of, you know, how many things that you have to study, 
uh, to get the degree and how much time you have. Um, and so he really cultivated in me um, just a little bit of a, a business savviness. So before I graduated, I had already drafted um, a really infantile version of a lessons contract. Um, I had also, he had also taught um, in our Woodwind Methods class, there was a whole class that was dedicated entirely to uh, filling out taxes as an independent contractor and just understanding what things were tax deductible and what weren't. Um, I had that supplemented by um, a, a music business class at Peabody that my professor Gary Louie taught at the time. Um, and I think that that understanding of how to uh, make money uh, and how to um, set up opportunities outside of school helped with that. Um, again, going back to just sending cold emails, but also just having a good set of documents in place to ensure that, you know, if you have a contract, that's going to help ensure that you're paid on time. Um, I also, like I said, just thoroughly enjoy teaching. And so the combination of engaging with an activity that I enjoy teaching um, and being able to monetize that activity um, in a way that's fair and equitable to me, but also ensures that students are still having access to instruction if they want it. Um, I think that that was really important to me as well. It was just a wedding of something that I was already interested in and just kind of converting it to where it could serve as a revenue stream for me. So what, what has surprised you about your artistic journey post, like post-graduation from undergrad, post-graduation from Peabody? Is, has anything surprised you about kind of how your journey has developed personally? I would say the biggest surprise has been the multiplicity of opportunities that have come my way. And it's uh, from a lot of saying yes to things that initially didn't look like they were 100% in line with what a traditional career was going to look like. And having good people beside me who encouraged me to take those opportunities. I think that a lot of what has happened in my career thus far has been from taking opportunities or um, even just going to social events that involve people who are outside of my immediate sphere of engagement. Um, and that can be as simple as people who um, don't play the same instrument as you. Um, the other thing is just how unbelievably um, unlinear it is. And how I think I've really come to conceive of progress a lot differently. I think that it's just so, such a misrepresentation of progress that we show it as this linear progression. Um, and the same thing with a career. It's just such a varied thing that goes up and it goes down. Um, and I think being able to acknowledge that a career is a very personal thing and that when it deviates from what you see someone else doing, that is not any cause for alarm because ultimately a career should be something 
that you find a lot of personal value in. Because again, if we're talking about longevity, how are you going to want to get up every day for the next 40 years and engage with a career if it just looks like the same thing that everybody else is doing? And initially that was really terrifying. I I mean, Christina, I'll tell you that I tried desperately to build my career to look like other successful careers in the field. Um, I was trying to model the same repertoire that people were playing. I was applying for the same competitions, the same fellowships. And eventually I had a mentor sit down with me and they said, Kyle, you know, this person has this corner of the market locked down. Like there is not room for another of this individual in the field. And if you think about it like a business model, if there's 30 iterations of a product, you know, if I've got, I don't know, 30 iterations of a cotton swab, as a young startup, probably the last thing that you need to do is put out yet another brand of cotton swab. I think that Q-tip has got it locked down. (laughs) And I think that maybe that's not a direct one-to-one comparison. But I think that my career has become the most enjoyable now that it does not look like other people's career. Now, that's not to say that there are some things that look similar. You know, of course, we're going to play some of the same repertoire. And of course, we're going to apply for some of the same competitions. But I think that I am understanding now that if we do think about it as a business model, you know, the more that you can do to differentiate the, quote, product that you're putting out, maybe that makes us feel a little squeamish calling an artistic product a product in in a sense of like something to consume, but kind of go with me here. Um, I really think that that ultimately has been what has allowed me to grab opportunities is because of that slight different, uh, differentiation from my peers. Because if you really try to just pick a career model that looks like someone else, you basically pigeonhole yourself into one chance of success, which is you know doing what they do, but better than they do. Um, I think I have a decent amount of facility on my instrument and uh, understanding of my craft, but I certainly don't think that uh, and would not want to put the entire chance of my success uh, down to just being able to, I don't know, play X concerto better than everyone else, you know? Well, I think, yeah, well, that's, I think that really speaks to what you mentioned just a second ago about sustainability in your career as a person. And then you also, what you mentioned earlier at the very beginning of our conversation about looking at a career that makes you happy, satisfied, whatever that means to, to you for 40, 50 years. So I think that's a really great insight to kind of close this interview on. Awesome. Well, Christina, thank you so much. I appreciate you carving out some time and, uh, and setting this up. It's been a real joy to talk to you and of course, get to see you again. And, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, for anyone listening, hopefully this, uh, offers a little bit of insight or guidance and, uh, I look forward to hearing the finished product. Thank you so much, Kyle. It's been a pleasure and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You can learn more about Kyle at his YouTube page, which is linked in the podcast notes. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
2021 theme music for the Max Q podcast created by Dimitro Nebish.